In the New Testament, they have these uh, kind of the page numbers that go by Old Testament and New. So in the New Testament, it's page 35, or you can turn to Mark chapter 10, because we're going to read there in a few minutes. First, I'm going to start off with this story. Um, we had a, a great time, you know, growing up with our kids, but it's an interesting adventure, at, to say the least. So I, one day when I was out hiking with Elliot, he was a little guy. I'm thinking he was in the seven to eight range. And, and whenever we would walk, he would walk for maybe quarter mile with me on the trail. And then he'd get tired of that. That was boring. So wherever we were, he would kind of scramble around in other places and crawl under things. And we were walking, if I remember it right, we were up on Swan Mountain and we were walking along in some of those cliffed areas. And he started scampering up on these cliffs up along as we're walking along. And I'm kind of just walking minding my own business. And I kind of, as I'm moving, I can hear him up there. And then I hear this, hey, dad. And I turn and he's right there. I mean, he has jumped from, I don't know how high up because I didn't even see where he came from. He leapt and he realizes in the air, I should probably say something. So he says, hey, dad, and he's right on top of me. So now I'm like a circus act, you know, I'm juggling and I I catch him. He knocks me to the ground and I'm just about ready to pass out. I cannot believe what's going on. So I remember just catching my breath and kind of going, dude, can you even remotely explain, you know, why did you jump without saying anything? And he says very simply and matter of factly, Because you're my dad. Because you're my dad. And the truth is that we can learn some things from that. Because you're my dad. There's some ideas of trust in that. I hope you can walk away here today. You guys, by the way, get 10,000 extra points for your team because you have to listen to this sermon twice. If you want to leave, you you may. But uh, anyways, yeah, you're you're out of here. I know, you're all going to check out. I don't blame you. But there's some things to learn about trust. First of all, we can trust God. Elliot trusted me. Second of all, God trusts us. And that's a part we miss sometimes. God trusts us. There had been some things developing in Elliot to where he knew that I trusted him as much as he trusted me. There's some things to learn in that. The theme this week, you see all this stuff. I didn't, now you know I love props, but I didn't just hang all these up for my sermon. Okay, there's more going on here. And that's because we've got VBS going on. And the theme is this, sky, everything is possible with God. And I thought, now isn't that interesting because I bet adults could learn a little from that too. So we're going to unpack a couple of things that I bet you could walk away with. And the kiddos are going to be learning some things as well. So Mark chapter 10, again, it's page 35 in those blue Bibles there in front of you. And I want to read this passage to us. It's, oh, by the way, it's verse 13. Mark 10, 13. And this happens. Jesus is is out with the guys. And they're bringing children to him, the the people around him. They're bringing children to him so that he can touch them and bless them. But the disciples rebuke those bringing children. Something along the lines of, I guess he doesn't have time for the children. And Jesus saw this and he was indignant. That word is not used to describe Jesus very often. But when they cut off the kids coming to him, Jesus was like, hold on a second. Bring these kids. Here's what he says. Permit or suffer the children to come to me. Don't hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Now, if you walk in here, just as a by the way, if you walked in here this morning and you were a little bugged by all this stuff going on, you may want to reconsider that position. That's all I'm saying. Because Jesus said, bring the kids, bring the children to me. And he took them into his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. He did not blow these kids off. Love that. Verse 17. And he was about ready to set out on a journey. This is not coincidental that this comes up next, by the way. And a man ran up to him and he knelt before Jesus and he asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's kind of fishing to see what the guy really thinks. Fishing. You know the commandments. By the way, he says nothing about the first five, which are all about our relationship with God. He goes directly into the next five, which is about our relationship with each other. He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, bear false witness, defraud someone else, and be sure to honor your father and mother. And the young man says, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Now, here's what he's thinking. I may qualify, I may qualify to be a Talmudin, a follower of this rabbi. He's thinking that. Jesus looks at him, and I love this phrase, he felt a love for him. He felt a compassion. There was a connection there. And I believe this is an honest offer when Jesus says this. There's only one thing that you've got to do. You've got to go and sell all that you have, your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come Follow me. That phrase was a very specific phrase that rabbis used to gather their Talmudin. That was the magic words. Come, follow me. It was a legitimate offering. And as you know, the young man says, well, I'm sorry. He walks away saddened and grieving because he owned much property. And you know how valuable in their culture their property was to them. And Jesus looks around and he says to the disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are amazed. Why? Because typically the wealthy were the ones that were assumed that would make it into the kingdom of God. And they're amazed. And Jesus says again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, this may have been actually a dromedary going through the tiny little hole in a needle. It's unlikely, it's more likely that there was a gate. And there definitely was a gate that was cut out in the outside wall going into Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. And a a camel had to get down on its knees to fit through that hole. It was possible. And now the disciples are even more astonished because they're like, wait, then who can be saved? And Jesus makes this phrase to them. With people, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Everything is possible with God is what the kids are going to learn and what we're going to learn a little bit about. So, a couple of things that I want you to to learn. First of all, you may have heard of Blaise Pascal. Anybody hear of him? You guys all are supposed to raise your hand. Thank you. Anybody hear of him? Blaise Pascal. He was a mathematician and a really smart guy back in the the mid-1600s. Actually, he was born in the early 1600s. After the Great Reformation, he was a, a contemporary of Descartes. 
he was a genius in France and was known to be so and was counted on for a lot of information, a lot of teaching. In the mid-1600s, he had a very significant conversion experience. It's phenomenal to read about. But he came up with this little paradigm. He started with the idea of infinity. Now remember, he's a mathematician. But stick with me here. Because what we're going to is you can trust God. You can. You can trust God. He is trustworthy. So Pascal said, well, you start with infinity. And you think about infinity. And you know that that's a number somewhere. Now, what is the number that you assign to infinity? Well, there is no number. He even went so far to say, is it an odd number or an even number, infinity? Well, it's really not one of those either. And and as he keeps unpacking it a little bit, he comes to the conclusion to say this. Now, listen carefully. We often are bothered by the fact that we can't rationalize everything. We can't do everything with science. And yet something as simple as infinity, we realize infinity exists, but we cannot put a finger on it. We can't put a qualification on it. We can't narrow the field. We can't put it in a test tube and test it. But it exists, and we all know that it does. Interesting reference point. So then he says, okay, so if there is such a thing as infinity, then If there is a God, God has to be infinitely incomprehensible. There has to be no way that you can put God in a box. You cannot qualify. You cannot quantify. You cannot specify who and what God is. And in fact, the fact that that, uh, people are upset with Christians that they can't quantify God. Actually, if God is who he says he is and we could quantify him, we're the biggest liars. It doesn't even make any sense that you can quantify God. He's infinite. So, at the end of this long chain of infinite numbers, there's a great wager, a bet going on. Because there's a coin. On one side of the coin that's flipping at the end is a heads. And the heads is that God exists. And the tales is that God does not exist. And it's just about that simple. You cannot rationalize it. You can't figure it out. You can't, with math, be certain which side that this coin is going to land on. You can't. But it's going to land on a side. And the truth is, every single one of us is placing our bet as to which side this is going to land on. Heads or tails. Now, if heads is that God exists... God exists. A number of people have decided to put their wager on that. They haven't. In fact, right now in our culture, according to a poll in 2011, 91% of people in this country believe heads. There is a God. Now, to what extent? What he looks like? We're not talking that. We're just saying there is a God. Now, there's also another percentage of people who have decided for sure it's tails. It's got to be tails. And they're saying, no God can't be a God. They're actually in a smaller minority, for sure. And then there's people. And the truth is, some of that 91% of people, if you want to know the truth, actually say, I don't know. I couldn't really be sure. There's not enough information. I can't prove it. And since I can't prove it, I don't want to place a bet. 
I would rather stay out here and say, maybe there is a God, maybe there ain't a God. Maybe it's heads, maybe it's tails, I don't know. And Pascal had the sense and the reason to say, well, you know, functionally, you just chose tails. Functionally, you just said, there's not a God. Because in everything now that you're going to do and say, you've got to draw the conclusion that there is no God or else you've got to draw a conclusion there is a God. You can't say one or the other. It's, it's got to be heads or tails. That's it. Then he says, okay, what are the stakes here involved as to what you bet in this great wager? Well, the stakes are these. Life and death. And he said, okay, if, this, if the stakes are high, this is an important decision. If they're low, it's not an important decision. What if you choose heads and you say there is a God? And you say, I'm going to live my life according to that choice. Heads, God exists. Well, what do you have to lose? Because he says, here's how you're going to live your life. You're going to follow the teachings of, the way of what God has explained himself to be. You're going to love people. You're going to be kind and gracious. You're going to have joy. You're going to be giving. You're going to, be, you're going to have morality. You're going to make decisions based on something that affects other people. Is that so bad? That's not such a bad deal. And if you die and there is no God and eternity wasn't at stake, you lost nothing. But what if you choose tails and you say, there is no God? What do you stand to lose? Well, the truth is, you could still live your life that same way. But the truth is, you stand to lose everything when you die. Everything. Because if you didn't believe, according to the way God has presented himself, if you didn't believe, then you just lost the whole bet. You lost this life and you lose eternity. And that's a high stakes wager. Now, my guess is, based on the fact that you're in this room, you decided to get up, come, you know, get in your car, drive here, be in church today. The chances are most of you have chosen heads and you say there is a God. I know the reality, though. Some of you are still wondering. Some of you do. Some of you are still questioning and trying to figure it out. My suggestion, and so would be Pascal's, trust God. If you're going to take a jump and jump off the cliff, that's not a bad jump to take, is to decide to trust God and get about that business. Now, the interesting thing is this. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, there's discussions about what trust means. There's about eight words that have this general kind of acknowledgement that there is a God, he's trustworthy, you can count on him to show up, he's going to provide, he's going to do certain things. And then there's a word, batak, that means this is more than just an acknowledgement of an existence and a trust and this being trustworthy. This is a decision to take a step to say, I will radically engage with this God. I will throw everything on the ground in front of this God. I will, and you hear all the I wills? There's a whole bunch of action in the trust that is the trust in the Lord with all your hearts of Proverbs 3. The trust described of David, the trust of Hezekiah, the trust of Joseph, the trust of Daniel that said, no matter what, I will do almost ridiculous things if God wants me to, I will trust. 
And that is a critical difference and a juncture. And, and there's a, a thing that starts to come up in the whole nature of the gospel and when Jesus came that involves trust on this level. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know this. Trusting that there is a God is awesome. But trusting Christ and actually allowing Christ to trust you is the real deal. Nothing is, is impossible with God. Everything is possible. God has put life together. He's done all kinds of things. But when you start talking about the sky's the limit, there's a different trust going on here. You're crossing a boundary. You may get, if you know Haley, little Haley Pfeiffer, she wrote this letter to me during the last service. And she says, uh, let's see, I love God. He gives me life and food, and my dog, and most of all, he is in my heart. And I am not thankful for my toys and my candy, but I am thankful for me and for God, and that he is in my heart, and that's all that matters. O-L-T-H-A-T-M-A-D-R-S. All that matters. Now here, ladies and gentlemen, is the beginning of a decision to say, it's not just that Everything is possible. God exists. But to take that radical step that the sky's the limit because God trusts me with some things. God trusts me with some things. There was a rabbinical process that people went through in the time period when Jesus was here and alive. I want to explain just a couple of things to you about that. First of all, there was this sense that when you were six years old, now, up until six, most of the great rabbis had said, prior to six, we really don't want your kids. Keep them home. They're fine. You take care of them. Do whatever you need to do. At six years old, we want your kids. And everybody's child started coming to the synagogue, and they started memorizing. This was called, in their time, the house of the book. And six to ten, you memorized. You didn't just memorize 12 verses. You memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You learned the entire Torah, the original teachings of, of Moses, the writings of Moses. Did you ever wonder why when Jesus was talking and teaching to people that they seemed to know the verses he was talking about? You want to know why? They had all memorized them all. Everybody in town memorized the entire Old Testament. And then there's a break point. When you get to 10, from 10 to 14, it was called the House of Learning. And the house of learning was a time frame where now you memorize the rest of the Old Testament, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, everybody all the way through. And you start learning some of the oral teachings of the great rabbis and learning how that works. And you start learning how you question things and wrestle with things. You remember when the Pharisees would walk up to Jesus and, and ask him a question? Who do you say John the Baptist was? And what did Jesus answer them with? Another question. Jesus would always ask them a question. Why? Because that was the process of the second tier of learning. And you'd start to learn the fact that you answer questions with questions because it shows that you're thinking, you're processing. It's running deeper for you while you're memorizing. Now, after this break point, after your mitzvah in your 13, 14 years, this was a break point. Other people who did not make the cut at this point went and started learning their dad's, you know, trade. 
And they started going into the family business and doing whatever they needed to do. And that was, by, way, by the way, most of the people in the culture. Because they couldn't all make them pass the muster on this. But there was a third tier where young people would choose a rabbi. And they would say, I really believe that rabbi has the right teaching. And I want to, it was called, I want to take his yoke on me. That phrase was not something Jesus randomly pulled out. It was a sense of not just that I go and kind of follow the guy around for a couple of days and read three of his books. I mean, you know, I've read every book C.S. Lewis ever wrote. I have. I am not a Talmudine of C.S. Lewis because I did not go kick around with him and learn what he was doing and become like the rabbi. And that was what the, the young people would apply. Hey, do you think there's any way I could take your yoke and become a follower, a Talmudin, like, like others that you have taken on? And then the rabbi would make the decision to say yes or no. Now, I want to kick this into what was going on. Jesus is walking around. Jesus has been confirmed by John the Baptist and by his own father speaking out of heaven to say, this is my son Hear ye him. He has authority. And Jesus is walking around and and God says to him, it's time to choose some followers. Who does he find? Does he put an ad in the paper and say, hey, come and apply. You can be one of my Talmudin. No. He walks around and he finds guys who flat out had been rejected already. He finds guys holding fishing nets. He finds guys collecting taxes. He finds guys at political rallies. He finds guys in random places. And he knows these are young men who did not pass the muster. And Jesus grabs them and he says, come follow me. What did they do? (laughs) They dropped the nets, right? Why? Because in their culture, it was the dream of every young man to be a Talmudin, to be a follower, to decide I will take the step, and it's not just that I believe in God and I trust in God, but the sky is the limit because I am going to become a follower and become like my rabbi. Like my rabbi. And this is the break point, folks. This is it. This is the grand difference. Now go back to this illustration with Elliot jumping off the cliff. He's jumping down to me. On the one hand, he knows... Everything is possible with dad. I guess there's a pretty good chance he'd catch me. He hasn't let me down before. He's shown himself to be trustworthy. Every other time that we've been in situations like this, he hasn't just ducked and then said, ha ha. Okay, this is a trustworthy guy. So I think it's reasonable. This is a ra- almost a rational, reasonable thing. Just like deciding whether I want to call heads or tails. This is a good bet on my dad. But there were some other things that had been going on between me and Elliot by that point that had changed the nature of that. From just simple, he could trust me. Elliot knew by then, because I know we had already started the process of building him a great big skate park in the backyard. I trusted him with that. We had been skiing for years on the mountains here. We'd been out doing different things. We'd walked a couple of spines up on these high mountains that he knew I trusted him. That had changed. The nature of the relationship had changed. And now he doesn't just jump because he believes in me. He jumps because he knows I believe in him. 
So go back to Jesus. Jesus says some things then to these guys. He's walking around with them. And he says, hey, come follow me. And they're astounded, of course, but they do. They, they drop and they go. Then he says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you this. You remember in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts unpacking teaching. And rabbis hardly ever had that much authority. And people around him are saying, who is this guy and how is he teaching with so much authority? And the reason was because he was trustworthy. And he says, you know what, guys? There's some understanding that needs to be happening here. And they were astounded, but they went, huh, wow. And then he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No, no rabbi would ever tell their Talmudin, this is going to be a walk in the park. Nobody would ever say that. They would actually try to make it almost impossible. They would say to them, this is a a common phrase, you're going to eat the dust that is kicked up by my feet. That's what you're going to do. This is not going to be fun. And they would literally do all the mundane stuff. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. This isn't tough. And they're astounded at that. They're like, okay. And Jesus says, you will even do greater things than the things that you've seen with me. And in fact, when I go, the Holy Spirit will will come and you'll almost be glad that I'm gone. Because the Holy Spirit is going to do things Do you hear the potential that Jesus saw in those young men? The Holy Spirit is going to do things when I'm gone that will blow your socks off. Amazing. And then last, he says to them, guys, you didn't choose me. I chose you. He says, you didn't go through some kind of an application process. You didn't have to fill out a 40-page essay. You didn't have to do all that stuff. I came and found you. And ladies and gentlemen, know this wherever you are on your life journey. Jesus wants to come and choose you. Trust you. He wants you to say, okay, here's the first step. I call heads. I'll trust. But then second of all, he wants you to say, okay, I'll drop the nets. I'll sell my stuff. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I'll follow. And he trusts you with that. It's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth. Thank you for the chance to talk to children this week and to say to them that that they can trust God and to model that for them. And help us now in this week to go and to model in all that we say and do, to be examples, but also to ask ourselves the question, first of all, have we chosen heads that we truly trust you? And second of all, have we dropped the nets and chosen to eat the dust and chosen to say we will follow you with our hearts and lives, just like that great song the choir sang. We pray all that in Christ's name. Amen. Stand together if you would. So, as a benediction, Jesus said this. Guys, with people, pretty much everything is impossible. Some stuff's possible. But there's impossibility out there. But not with God. For because with God, all things are possible. Go and have a great week this week. Thanks for coming.